The vast majority of medical students in MD schools are coming from these high socioeconomic status backgrounds. And given what it takes to play the game successfully, one of my respondents pointed out that, you know, if he had to have, you know, a part-time job or if he was supporting his family, he wouldn't have had the time to do all these extracurriculars. Welcome back to In Good Society, the podcast debunking the myth that everyone has equal opportunity to succeed in America. I'm your host, Sydney Sauer, and on this episode, we're talking about the hidden system that funnels low-income students away from traditional medical schools and sets them on a track with less resources and less career potential. Here's a not-so-fun fact for you. We actually have a huge doctor shortage in the United States. Reports predict that the U.S. will face a shortage of between 54,000 and 140,000 physicians by 2033. And each year, we graduate so few med students that they don't even fill 20 to 45 percent of residency positions. Students are vying for a super limited number of med school spots, not because we need a limited number of doctors, but because keeping enrollment low is what makes the medical profession so prestigious. These limited U.S. medical school spots push some people into international medical schools, mostly in the Caribbean, and DO programs. But recent research has shown some fishy patterns about which students have been directed away from getting their MD. Even worse, these students are put at the bottom of the list for pretty much every opportunity in the future, most notably including residency. If you're anything like me, you're probably already confused, but hang tight because joining us today is an expert guest who literally wrote the book on this topic. Dr. Tanya Jenkins is an assistant professor of sociology at UNC Chapel Hill, where her research studies how social forces in medicine and healthcare affect doctors and patients. Her new book, Doctor's Orders, focuses on the marginalization and segregation of international and DO medical school graduates and how denying these doctors equal opportunity affects their career success, which is what we'll be discussing today. Welcome to the show today. I'm so excited to have you here. And first and foremost, wanted to say congratulations on getting your book published. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to be here chatting with you today. You talk about in your book two big buckets of different types of medical students, right? So we have on the one hand, it's pretty easy to understand people who go to school here in the U.S. and then they go on to get a medical degree, an MD uh, here in the U.S. And you refer to those in your book as USMDs. What is this other group? What is a non-USMD? What makes them different? So when we think of U.S. medical students, we often will think of implicitly the U.S. MD category. As you mentioned, these are U.S. citizens studying medicine and getting a uh, doctorate of medicine or MD degree in the U.S. Um, in the non-U.S. MD category, I'm actually grouping together three types of medical graduates. The first um, are U.S. international medical graduates or U.S. IMGs. These are U.S. citizens who go internationally to study medicine, often but not exclusively to the Caribbean, and will come back to the United States to complete their residency training, which is the part of training that happens after medical school. The next group of individuals are IMGs. So these are non-U.S. citizen international medical graduates who study medicine in their home countries prior to coming to the United States. And the final group of physicians that I uh, incorporate into the non-USMD group are 
US citizen medical students who are actually studying and getting a doctor of osteopathic medicine degree or DO degree. These are folks who are um, learning medicine just like their USMD peers, but they're learning it in a kind of um, parallel profession that is allowed to practice medicine in the United States. But for reasons that I detail in the book, DOs are often in some ways treated as uh, second-class citizens within the US medical profession. And that's the reason I group them with the USIMG and IMG candidates to consider those non-USMDs as a large group. Okay, so when I go to the doctor, I'm always just going to see doctor whoever, but underneath that, there's these different categories of ways to get that degree, and there's different types of status associated with those. Exactly. So in your book, you first talk about USMDs, and you talk about the path to become one. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. are familiar with this because everyone knows the story of the tired pre-med undergraduate, right, the long hours of medical school and residency. How does someone become a USMD? What does that path look like? Yeah, and some of them would actually joke it starts in utero. Um, But effectively, what my respondents described to me was this process of playing the game to get into medical school and beyond. And it's this process of both ticking off boxes, meeting requirements to get into medical school, residency, et cetera, and setting oneself apart. There's both kind of a standardization to the process, but also kind of a process of making yourself stand out and be unique. But in your book, you talk a lot about things that people don't see, which would be how much help these students receive along the way, right? What I found in my research in interviewing these USMDs, a lot of them had Um, significant help within medical school from the profession, whether it was extra time to take tests, whether it was tutors that were paid for by the medical school, or even sometimes more informal help, things like social networks, their mentors, being able to put them in touch with the right people. Um, That help that they received along the way was part of this kind of concept that I refer to as the professional social contract. And what is it about that process that so much favors upper-class students? Because couldn't any student from any background theoretically work really hard throughout their undergraduate, miss the parties, like you said, and still take advantage of that social contract? Sure. And, you know, to be sure, there are examples of that. Um, What's striking, however, is if we look at data from the last 30 years, the vast majority of medical students in MD schools are coming from these high socioeconomic status backgrounds. And given what it takes to play the game successfully from hundreds of hours of shadowing to, um, you know, being involved in various extracurricular activities, goes without saying, scoring astronomically high grades, one of my respondents pointed out that, you know, if he had to have, you know, a part-time job or if he was supporting his family, he wouldn't have had the time to do all these extracurriculars. So time is a major factor that being of high socioeconomic status affords you. But in addition to that, sometimes it's actually resources, right? Knowing doctors that you can shadow. And of course, you know, being able to afford to enroll in test prep sessions, right? So the MCAT was considered the single rate limiting factor to entering medical school. Resources make the path to that USMD spot much easier. What happens to these students who want to become doctors but don't have those resources? I know in your book, you write about this other category, right, of the non-USMDs and how certain students get funneled sort of into that track. How do these students who are low income start to be separated out from the pack? 
Yeah. So in my interviews with non-USMDs, um, a couple things emerged. A large swath of the respondents that I spoke to who went to the Caribbean to study, a lot of them had expressed interest, sometimes vague interest in something medical or medically oriented early in their life. Um, many of them were first-generation college graduates. Many of them didn't have a kind of blueprint in mind for what it takes to, you know, to check off all those boxes and make yourself unique in the, in the medical school application process. And so when they went to advisors um, in different capacities, whether it was a high school guidance counselor or a college health professions advisor, um, they were oftentimes nudged uh, towards non-MD careers. For different reasons, um, DOs and uh, non-U.S. citizen international medical graduates were also disadvantaged when playing the game. About half of the DOs that I spoke to viewed uh, osteopathic medicine as their first choice. They were really drawn into the whole person care uh, approach or orientation that comes with DOs. The other half were uh, viewed DO school as a kind of backup plan, if you will. The non-U.S. international medical graduates, their, their trajectories looked a lot more like USMDs initially, right? They came from very high socioeconomic status backgrounds, very high achievers, uh, but of course lacked the professional kind of sponsorship, if you will, the support of the medical profession in the United States when it came to applying to residency once they came stateside. Okay, so we have these two groups. We have our USMDs, our non-USMDs. There's already so many differences between them, high income, low income growing up with a privileged background, not growing up with a privileged background. But the differences don't stop there, right? You write about in your book how after medical school, residency looks very different for these two different groups of graduates. And specifically, you highlight two specific residencies, which is Legacy and Stonewood. What was different between them and who went where? So I studied, as you mentioned, two uh, internal medicine residency programs, right? These are um, two three-year programs where um, the, the trainees in both programs were training to become internists. But on the one hand, um, one was a small community hospital. I call that legacy community hospital. And that program, that three-year internal medicine program staffed um, without exception, exclusively non-US MDs. Um, in comparison, the larger university hospital that I studied, which I call Stonewood University Hospital, um, I believe had about 98% US MDs. You could say, well, hey, wait a minute, right? These are just two hospitals. What do these two hospitals tell us about the, the, the landscape of medical training across the country? It turns out that when you look at the composition of internal medicine residency programs nationwide, the vast majority of programs are segregated in this way, such that only 16%, that's one six percent of uh, internal medicine training programs can be described as integrated, such that they staff more or less equal numbers of USMDs and non-USMDs. Instead, you have this kind of U-shaped distribution with a large proportion of community programs staffing 90% or more non-USMDs and a large percent of university programs staffing 90% or more USMDs. Wow. And you mentioned too that there's a lot of differences in quality between these programs. The primary difference, as I would sort of describe it, between these two training programs was the primary role that the residents would play. And at 
university at Stonewood University Hospital, right? This is a big academic medical center. The primary role of the residents were to be first and foremost trainees, right? This was a place for them to learn how to practice medicine in a supervised fashion, to see some of the most interesting cases that they could potentially see. They had regular daily supervision on rounds with an attending physician that would go from one room to the next and they would you know, see each patient as a group and learn on each patient on a regular basis. Legacy Community Hospital had a different orientation. The primary orientation was for the residents to be workers first, trainees second. The trainees were not as closely supervised as they were at Stonewood University Hospital. Now, they did have rounds every morning, but those rounds typically consisted of sitting around a conference table rather than going from one patient to the next. Primarily for financial reasons, the hospital really relied on these, uh, again, largely non-USMD residents to serve as uh, inexpensive labor for the hospital um, and attend to their learning kind of secondarily. I don't know about you guys, but I just learned a lot. To recap, students who get MDs from medical schools in the US unlock access to a social contract that pretty much guarantees them future success. While on the other hand, students who attend international medical schools or doctor of osteopathy programs get less access to proper training and resources. When we come back, we'll discuss why these topics in Tanya's work matters, not just for physicians, but also for patients, especially those in already marginalized communities. But first, I want to remind everybody that if you love In Good Society, please follow the podcast on social media, or better yet, share the show with your friends. You can follow us for exclusive updates and sneak peeks at In Good Society on Instagram and Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Thanks, everybody. Let's dive back in. And what sorts of implications do these differences have for these students' careers later on once they graduate? Yeah. After residency training, if you want to further subspecialize, oftentimes trainees will have to, you know, start doing research in that particular subspecialty in order to then match to what's called fellowship. That's the next stage of subspecialty training after residency. Research opportunities were few and far between at um, at Legacy, as were mentorship opportunities. So um, the residents had to kind of seek out their own mentorship. Whereas at Stonewood, the joke was almost that the trainees were mentored to death, um, that they were assigned anywhere between three and five mentors. They regularly got a catalog of over 100 different research projects happening at Stonewood University Hospital with the ready invitation, explicit invitation to reach out to those PIs that they're looking to involve residents in their research. The opportunities couldn't look more different. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, when it came to matching into those um, subspecialties, of course, um, Stonewood residents had a much easier time doing so. Why does all of this matter so much? What are the impacts of this segregation on not only doctors, but patients? Is there a way we can take this and put it into our own lives and impact our own, uh, our own health? Yeah, they matter clearly, as my research has, has found, for the physicians themselves. They might also matter for patients um, in a couple of different ways. It was beyond the formal scope of my research to look at patient outcomes. I did not compare patient outcomes between these two settings that I studied. It's really hard to kind of isolate just the role of 
for residents in that interaction. But what I did observe were important differences in approaches to patient care, differences in professionalism, differences in um, the ability to catch errors before they're made, before they have implications for patients. Um, because of the supervision structures of these two hospitals, it was much easier to catch errors at Stonewood University Hospital. The other thing I would say is for listeners, you know, pay attention to where your physician trained and what their trajectory into the profession might have looked like and how that trajectory might have been shaped by invisible constraints. And be mindful that if, you're, if your physician is from uh, a non-USMD background, whether it's a Caribbean graduate, a, a DO, or um, an international medical graduate, that they've often had to you know, jump through additional hoops and have had to, in some cases, do more than the average USMD in order to get access to less prestigious, sometimes you know, lower quality training positions. There's currently also a gap between how many physicians the United States needs and what we're able to offer, right? Can this also be a way that people in rural communities or places where doctors aren't as present are being affected by this segregation and this status separation? Absolutely. Part of, of the motivation for studying the segregation in residency training is that non-USMDs disproportionately go on to fill positions in underserved, often rural um, less desirable geographic locations in the United States. And so it's important for us to pay attention to how these non-USMDs are being trained and treated within the profession in order to then down the line, see how that might be affecting those already um, disadvantaged communities. Interesting. So it sounds like one of the best ways to address this would just be to find new ways to integrate residency programs and to let these students you know, have more control over their, their own path, regardless of their background. Yeah, one, one takeaway from my research is that I think it is not helpful to, uh, certainly not to patient care, and I would argue probably not to the medical profession, to, to maintain such segregated training spaces. That the more trainees can actually train alongside each other in different kinds of settings, um, the better the outcomes and again, just even you know, from my own research, my own interviews with USMDs, those that had had actual lived experience alongside working alongside DOs and international medical graduates actually came to have a, a, a great admiration and respect for the unknown other. And I'm using big air quotes, even though you can't see them. So having more experience working alongside those physicians, I think, could actually um, help reduce some of those status distinctions that we're talking about. A lot of people in America, as you mentioned before, have this idea of the American dream. The medical field is somewhere, especially where people think, oh, education is such a linear path to get to more status and to get to more prestige in society. But in light of everything we've talked about today, how students from low income and disadvantaged backgrounds have a much harder time playing that game and getting into those institutions that will bring them success in the future, it looks like in a lot of cases that's not true for medical students. So how would you respond to people who say that the American dream applies to everybody and that those who are, you know, failing just need to work harder? I would respond that implicit or explicit in that idea is the, is the notion of equality of opportunity, right? Everybody has the same chance. It's just a matter of how much work you put into it. And I would say that that perspective doesn't account for a couple things. The first thing is it doesn't account for the fact that the resources are distributed unequally in the population. It also assumes that those who succeed in society do so 
by virtue of their own hard work, their own dedication. It obscures some of those structural, invisible headwinds and tailwinds that help certain groups of individuals reach that goal and actually make it more difficult for other groups of individuals to reach that same goal. Um, I like that sort of metaphor of headwinds and tailwinds because we think about, right, when, we, uh, when we're flying to Europe, right, when we're flying east, there's that wind that's kind of pushing you in the back of, of the, the, the airplane and it's invisible, but you get there faster, right? Um, on the way back, however, there are those, those headwinds, right? There are obstacles that make it harder to go as fast and to reach your goal in the same way that when you're flying sort of east goes. And so what I like to do in my work is make more explicit those headwinds and tailwinds that make it such that certain individuals are able to succeed versus others and that complicate that idea that it's with enough hard work and dedication that anything is possible. That is a beautiful metaphor to end the show on. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Tanya. I look forward to seeing what work you produce in the future. Of course, thanks for having me. It's been a total pleasure. That was Tanya Jenkins, author of Doctor's Orders. If you're interested in learning more about status separation in the medical field, you can get a copy of her book on Amazon or buy directly through the Columbia University Press for a 30% discount with the code CUP30. The link is in the show notes, and I encourage you guys to check it out because we barely scratched the surface of her fascinating work. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I'll see you next time.